Now, I did not pick the titles. I gave a list of lectures, and whoever chose them chose besides me. But these two go together real well, because this starts where I ended, not just with the lecture, but where I ended with the question about soccer teams and would your, would your friend change just because you said your team was better than theirs and look at the statistics, we're better than you, you better change. No, no one changes like that. Why not? Because our worldviews are more important to us than what the facts say. Now, that even applies to the men whose patron saint is Mr. Spock. Nobody makes decisions totally on the data. It has a lot to do with our family, our health, where we live, what we like, who we like, who we've trusted and believed in all since we've been a little kid, like with our teams, our favorite teams because we're more affected by the glasses we wear. You know, I could say my glasses are German, American, Southern in the United States, uh, Republican. Those would be making up my glasses. And you'd have your own glasses. And they all color the way we look at the world. One thing about the atheists, the Dawkins-type people, they will often say to you, you know, if they believe it, it's about the most naive thing in the world. But I'm thinking maybe they don't believe it. They just use it for taunting. I don't know. But they often say, Christians have worldviews. Atheists don't. You know, you've got to be kidding. No, because all atheism means is atheism, which means no theism. The A nullifies, like if you're familiar with theology, amillennial, no literal millennium. So they'll, they'll often say, I just believe... I just disbelieve religion. That's all. I don't have glasses. Well, a number of years ago, I was debating at um, Edinburgh. And the guy was a classics scholar, and he was trying to tell me Jesus never lived. Almost virtually nobody in the field, no matter how liberal they are, will say that. They will not, in other words, they will not say that. He kept saying it, and he said, you have glasses, I have none. And finally, I don't take digs at people during the debates, but finally I got tired of him saying it because it was so naive. And I said, you know something? I said, you teach classics, but you need to take one, you need to take some philosophy. And then I paused and I said, probably an intro course would do it. I mean, it is such a naive comment. We all have angles. That's what glasses are. They're angles. They're ways to look at the data. What I want to introduce here is the question of religious doubt 
And as you'll see, religious doubt is rarely... I do want to say about something about the facts right at the beginning, but for the most part, religious doubt is not totally about the facts, or even mostly about the facts. Might surprise you. Um, I have... I, I never liked psychology in school. But as the years went on, I had to get more into it. And I went back to school after my PhD and took a diploma with the most influential. Psychologists are kind of funny. They rate their scholars often, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I don't know any other field that does that. I mean, you do that in sports, but you don't do that with scholarship. And this guy had been the number one psychotherapist in the world for years. And I went back and studied with him because I needed help to deal with the people who were coming to me to talk about their doubts. But notice, I went to a psychologist, not to a philosopher or an historian. Why? I wanted help working with people's glasses. I had to deal with their worldview. And ever since when students found out, I told you my te little testimony earlier, <clears throat> when students found out that I'd gone through a long period of doubt and it was pretty devastating to me, they said, can I come talk to you privately? Sure. So over the years, I've talked to probably 650 doubters. Well, I shouldn't say 650 as in different kinds. I've had 650 discussions with doubters who could have been the same ones over and over. And... You know, an interesting phenomenon in recent years, I have talked to, I wouldn't say almost as many, but I've talked to a large number of unbelieving skeptics who are doubters. It's odd. But people doubt, not because they can't think. People doubt because they're humans. That means it's about glasses. Here's two big reasons we doubt. Number one, if you want to look at a biblical perspective, we're sinners. Whatever else sinners means, that means we fall short. And because we're not purely this or purely that or totally rational or whatever, we can get messed up. Number one, we're sinners. Number two, as I said, we're all human, and human beings are emotional beings, more or less. Some are more than others. But in the midst of talking to, having hundreds of discussions on doubt and going back and taking this diploma in uh, rational emotive behavior therapy, um, I started working with a team of psychologists. I'll just stop here. Here's one of my very few footnotes for this lecture. It's a funny one. You know you have an issue when all your friends are either philosophers or psychologists. <laughs> They're all head cases in one sense or another. And I started working with a group of four psychologists, and we're getting ready to publish uh, a study, a long-term long study of hundreds of doubters. And guess one of the results. This is amazing. A 
about 70 to 80 percent of all doubters are emotional doubters, not factual doubters. It is true that women are more prone to doubt emotionally than men, but it is not true that men rarely have emotional doubt. In fact, I wasn't married to Eileen for a real long time before she heard me do this lecture. And she said, women actually have an advantage over men. This ought to be good. <laughs> and she said, at least we know we're emotional. <laughs> I have to admit that was pretty good. It was pretty good. Because I mean, those of you who liked rock music and have been around for a, lot of, a long time, there was a group, a folk rock group, who was very well known in the 1960s, Simon and Garfunkel. And they sang a very famous song, I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. You know the only problem with saying, I don't have any emotions and I'm a rock, is that he was whimpering, they were whimpering all the way through the song. Think about it. I mean, the song is a contradiction of the words they were saying. I think we would do well to start and acknowledge that we are emotional creatures. Like I said, some more than others. But we all make decisions from the colors of our glasses, and emotions rank more highly with our... It's a rare person where the facts rank more highly than who you care for, what's your life about, what's most important to you. Okay, let's dig in. We've got a definition here to start. It's only a few slides. We're gonna, I cut down a slide presentation. Last night I sat in my room and cut down the slides to get a fewer number to concentrate. I'm gonna define religious doubt as uncertainty regarding God or our relationship to him. Uncertainty, if I had to pick one word as a good synonym, I'd pick the word uncertainty. Doubt is uncertainty. And I'm not here to tell you today, I'll say this right up front, I'm not here to tell you that doubt is evil, it's bad. If your child starts asking questions last week, start going, oh no, I gotta weed this out of them really quickly. It's probably not gonna happen like that. Um, I think guided doubt is probably better than no doubt. And it's better than just letting doubt be a free fall kind of doubt, guided doubt. Doubt is good, but sometimes doubt goes into some nasty psychological channels, let's say. The most common people I talk to over the years, if I were to identify them psychologically, they would probably have some kind of anxiety disorder or obsessive personality types. Now notice, I didn't say OCD. I didn't say obsessive uh, compulsive disorder. I said obsessive compulsive personality types. Uh, my, one of my closest friends is a clinical psychologist, and he says if you have a PhD 
or if you've gone through scholastic channels, you probably have an OC personality, not OCD, OC personality, because you wouldn't get through your program without some stick-to-itiveness. And that's kind of what OC brings to the table, obsessive or compulsive. You want to finish at all costs. Not everyone does, of course. But you know how they measure? I gotta be careful. Some of you might be a counselor or psychologist here. I am close enough to it to be dangerous. I've taught a course for 10 years in our PhD clinical counseling program. I teach philosophy of psychology. I teach why the underpinnings of it, why philosophical techniques work. I don't have to know the ins and outs of philosophy to know that. Sorry, I don't have to know the ins and outs of psychology to know that. I'm doing the philosophy part. When you say philosophy of medicine or business ethics or those fields, it's philosophy of. And I do philosophy of psychology. That's what I'm going to be talking to you about today, not the psychology per se. So take everything I say about psychology with a severe dash of salt because I'm over my head. But I can tell you phenomena-wise what describes these people. I can do that all day long after 650 discussions. And back to my friend who says, if you're in a high intellectual pursuit or personality or job, you probably have an OC, some OC in your personality because it's a good thing. So I asked him one day, when does OC become D? When does OC become bad? There's a very simple definition. It becomes bad when it starts affecting you negatively. When it starts tearing you up, you might need something. But all of, if all it does is keep your nose to the grindstone, good. That's good. It probably regiments your life. But those are the two kind of people I hear the most. Anxiety and obsessive compulsive. And I have counselors send some of their clients to me to talk to them, not because I'm a healthcare professional, because I am not, and I want, to hear, I want you to hear that, I am not, but because I deal with the doubt side of things, and doubt is one of the most common issues plaguing people today, religious and non-religious, and they get this in their counseling sessions a lot. So that's what's behind this. Because here, here's the problem. Doubt settles. I could, I could take doubt out of there and I could say worry. Or I could say obsession. Those sorts of things settle on what is most important to us. And so if you're churned up about something, you're doubly churned up. If it's your child, or your grandchild, or your elderly parents, or a very close friend, someone who's dying, our consternation settles on important people and important topics. So you're telling me what's important to you by telling me what you worry about. Here's a little story my mom tells, it's really cute but it makes the point really, really well. 
You know, my mom was involved, was in, in another generation when I tell you she was married when she was 18. And I'm the oldest, and I was born when she was 19. And when she was 20, she had my brother. And we both were pretty sick, or at least it seemed to her that we were pretty sick one day. I had 105 temperature, my brother had 104 temperature. My mother didn't drive. Um, I think her mom, my grandmother, came over and picked us up and took us to the doctors. And the doctor said, ma'am, your boys have the flu. I can't do anything for them because we don't give medicine for this. It's a virus. Take them home, give them lots of liquids and a lot of sleep. They'll get over it. Well, my mother was all churned up because they were her little boys and she just started motherhood. And the doctor saw she was all churned up and he said, ma'am, seriously, if they were my boys, I wouldn't worry about them. And she said, she didn't say it, but the thought shot into her mind real fast. If they were your boys, I wouldn't worry about them either. Right? The problem is they're not your boys, they're mine. And so you're not gonna keep me from being worried just by telling me, don't worry. That doesn't do it. Stop it. Uh, no, that didn't work. <laughs> All right, so I'm talking about the kind of doubt, not the kind that could be healthy and could put your roots down and give you some really solid beliefs, something like what we talked about the first hour. I'm talking about how to deal with your most worked up states that are really painful or can be really painful and dominate your life. Why do they dominate your life? Because they are about the persons and things that dominate your life. Okay, next. I divide doubt into three types. Uh, factual or philosophical doubt, doubt about the data, the hardest of the questions, but not, you know, this might be strange to you. I'm a guy that deals primarily with facts and philosophical issues. They are the easy questions. Go, really? You call the problem of evil easy? Yeah, I'm not talking about you just lost a loved one, easy. I'm talking about the test tube question of the problem of evil. Yes, it's not that hard. A miracle question? Well, you saw me do that. My doctoral dissertation was on the resurrection of Jesus in the secular school. Yeah, if you're just gonna stick with data, if you're not used to finding data, it might be hard for you, but if that's, your, if that's what you do for a living, that's not the tough one. The tough one are the second and third categories. The emotional one, number two, how do you know the difference between emotional doubt and factual doubt? The next one. Because here's the key. In, in emotional doubt, you, emotional doubters often ask the same questions as factual doubters. How do I know it's true? It's not that they ask different questions. It's that they ask different questions for different reasons. 
They ask them for emotional reasons, not factual reasons. So in other words, if they say, how do I know Jesus is raised from the dead? And you give literally 10 good convincing reasons. Here's a factual doubter. Wow, I didn't know there was that much. Thanks. I'm going to write these down. And I'm going to refer to them from time to time. Appreciate you talking. Here's the emotional doubter. Same question. How do you know the resurrection happened? Emotional doubter. Are you sure? What if we're wrong? What if questions are almost always emotional questions? What if we're wrong? To show them the, the strength of their question, I do this with them. If they say, what if we're wrong, I say, what if we're right? Oh, come on, don't do that with me, and I'll repeat it. Come on, don't do that with me either. What are you doing? I'm just using your objection. What do you mean? I ask you how we know it's true. No, you didn't really ask me how do I know it's true. You asked me how to get past the feeling that it might not be true. You're asking me, no matter what facts I give you, you're going to say, what if? What if trumps anything? I could clearly be right. Okay, here you go. You might have cancer. What should I do? Have some tests. Well, as a friend of mine did a few years ago, he had about 10 tests. If you want to, you know what you can say? What if I still have cancer and you just missed it? We didn't miss it. Do you know what 10 tests we ran? No, but what if I do? The tests say you don't. What if the tests are wrong? The tests say they're not wrong. What if it's deeper than what you measured? And pretty soon you go, why did you come to me in the first place? <laughs> talk to your paper boy or sit home and think this over because you don't want to talk to the specialists. All right, so one way you know it's emotional doubt is the type of question you ask. Yes, you might say, how do I know the resurrection happened? How do I know that I'm truly a child of God? How do I truly know that I'm on the yellow brick road? But no matter what the answer is, it's, what if I just think I'm on the yellow brick road, but I'm fooling myself? I say, what if I'm wrong? And I'll say, yeah, what if you're wrong? No, you're supposed to give me an answer. No, I can't give you an answer. Why can't I? Because you're asking me about how you feel. And no matter what I say, you're going to say, what if? Okay. They get convinced after a lot of talking. What can I do to get rid of the what ifs? Now, that's a good question. Here's another one. Do your doubts hurt? That's another way to tell the difference. Remember what I said about the factual doubter? Hey, thanks for those factual arguments. That's cool. Yeah, I think I'm good to go. They're gone. The emotional doubter, if you're the only one that'll talk to them, I've had emotional doubters that show up at my office every single time I get to my office every day and want to talk, and they wear you out. Not because they're, oh, I'm just asking questions you can't answer. No. 
you have feelings that nobody, including yourself, could control. That's the problem. How do you know? Well, one way is what if questions. One way is ask the person, do your doubts hurt? Yeah, they hurt a lot. How would you feel if you didn't know where you were going? I get it, but you just told me what kind of doubt you have. All right, just a thought or two about, our fa about factual doubt. Oh, by the way, volitional doubt, that has to do with people's motivations. Volitional doubt, let me tell you something about this. Emotional doubt is probably easily the most common kind of doubt. It's easily the most painful kind of doubt. And it's usually the least dangerous kind of doubt. See the juxtaposition between most painful, least dangerous. Volitional doubt is probably the most dangerous. And you know why it's the most dangerous? Let me give you a kind of a, a kind of volitional doubter. Um, and I don't know anything about anybody in your church, so I'm not talking about anybody. Somebody in your church has been a, whatever you call them in your denomination, a lay leader for so long. Or maybe they've been Sunday school superintendent, or adult teacher, or they're an elder, or they're a deacon. And if they're really good and everybody likes them, and they're willing to work, they may have, they may have held several of these positions over the years. And they're the person you don't want to leave the church and go somewhere and retire, or go somewhere else to get a job. You want them here. But what happens if that person, after being a leader in the church, let me use the word elder because that implies some wiseness to go along with the facts. Let's say that person doesn't come to church anymore. And let's pick on the guys. Let's say one or two of you in here, he's your best buddy. And your golf, your golf buddies, your fishing buddies, so you can talk to this guy like nobody else can talk to him. Kind of a little bit on pins and needles, but you finally out in the boat one day or out on the golf course, you say, why haven't we seen you in church? Are you going somewhere else? Nope. Why aren't you coming? I don't know. Just doesn't meet my needs anymore. What does meet your needs mean? You're not going anywhere else, no? Oh, have you come to the view that Christianity is not true? No, I think Christianity probably is true. Why aren't you coming? Well, oftentimes it starts with an emotional hurt. An emotional hurt, this isn't a nice word, but emotional hurt that festers turns into volitional hurt. It happens in marriages. When someone says some, somebody over and over and over again, you hurt me by doing this, or would you please stop doing this? And maybe for months or years, it becomes talk, 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 I'm really hurting, I'm, little, I'm really hurting. And the other person doesn't do anything. Finally, the one person might say, well, I'll just tell you what, you stay in your half of the house and I'll stay in my half of the house. I think it's probably better off that I don't expect an answer from you, 
because it hurts too much to expect one and to hear nothing. So I'm just going to pretend like, you know, we'll get two TVs and you can go in your own TV room and I'll have my TV room and maybe we'll see each other at dinner. But... And that's maybe an in-house separation or something like that. Well, strangely enough, we say the same thing to God. We say the same thing to God. And maybe this elder, former elder, is now saying it to God. And it goes like this. Lord, I've had a painful request for prayer for a long time. I've done everything I can possibly do for you in this house. I mean, in this church. I've tried to raise my kids the right way. I've tried to dot, dot, dot. And you just don't talk to me. You don't answer my prayer. Lord, I'll tell you what. I know you're there. But you stay in your half of the universe, and I'll stay in my half of the universe. Just leave me alone. That's volitional doubt. And it's the most serious. I'm only defining it for you. I'm not talking about it today. It's the most serious because here's the problem. How do you motivate somebody who doesn't want to be motivated? The emotional doubter, oh, they're motivated. You want to take them to a new course or a new lecture on how to cure their doubt and solve their pain? I'm all for solving my pain. The volitional doubter, you can get them out in the boat, but you can't get them to a conference because they're done with the Lord, because the Lord dogged them. And at first it was an emotional dog, but over the years when there's no response, it became you stay in your half of the universe, just for definition. But emotional doubt, most common, most painful. Guys or gals, most common, most painful. Next. Okay, I don't know if you just, I don't know if you could read the top line, but let me just make one comment about factual doubt. Some legitimately factual doubters turn into emotional doubters faster than they should, but I think this is a very common problem Christians make, and because it's so common, I'm just going to kind of put it out on the table and tell you you should avoid it, and then we'll go on and spend the rest of the time on emotional doubt. Here's the problem. A lot of factual doubters, they think they have to answer every question in the universe for their Sunday school class, if they're the teacher, for their unbelieving friends, for their children, just to satisfy their own curiosity. They think they have to be able to answer every question there is. And so let's say you want to concentrate on the resurrection because you bought my argument that the resurrection is the center of faith, but somebody asks you a question at work about creation. Why don't you believe evolution? Or the most vexing problem among Christians. Who was true, Calvin or Wesley? Sovereignty or free will? Or how about, am I eternally secure? Or when is the Lord's return? I don't mean to pick a date. I mean, what view of the second coming do you take? Or what view of the millennium do you take? And, and oftentimes, when people think they're not very good at answering Christians, when they think they're not very good at answering all those questions, they get bent out of shape. They've got a job, they've got a family, and they just can't major in all these questions. 
And sometimes when they can't answer some of the questions, they somehow, it's hard for me to imagine, but they think they're maybe either not a Christian or are leaving the Christian faith because they can't deal with the questions per se. And I'll I'll tell them, major in the major. Don't major in the minor. If the center of your faith is the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that puts you on, and you say, I do to Jesus, and saying I do to Jesus puts you on the yellow brick road and asks, what are you doing in this life? And you're moving toward heaven. That's the proper biblical approach. Well, the Luces and I, and uh, my wife, the four of us, we were talking about the difference between British and American culture. How, may, might be a dumb question to you. How many of you have seen and understand my Wizard of Oz analogy? Many of you don't? Peter, there's your... How many of you don't, not, never seen Wizard of Oz? Oh, only a few. Okay. All right. Well, you know, on the Yellow Brick Road, if you remember the famous Wizard of Oz story from 1938 or whatever, the movie. Remember, you meet lions and tigers and bears, oh my, on the Yellow Brick Road. What are those? Those are issues. And you have to deal with the issues. So once you get on the Yellow Brick Road, you still have issues. But you've solved the main one minimum to get into the kingdom you solved at least the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Let me tell you something, it might be shocking to you, but it should be very comforting. If all you know, I know there's a New Testament, I believe the New Testament's the word of God, but if all you know, all, 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 is that Jesus is son of God, died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead, plus, you said, I do, to Jesus. You don't have to answer the other questions. You're on the yellow brick road. And don't let the lions and tigers and bears get you off the yellow brick road. They're there. Remember, the, remember the, those of you who have seen it? Remember the apple trees that threw apples at people and would get you to throw apples back and get off the road? Don't get off the road. Don't let the tin man, he didn't come after anybody, but don't let the tin man come after you. Don't let the cowardly lion start trying to roar. And for crying out loud, don't let those tulips or whatever they were out in the field put you to sleep when you're going through the field. There's all kinds of problems in life, but you're on the path. Don't ever tell yourself, if I can't answer sovereignty free will, I'm probably lost. Oh, I never say that. But Christians get so frustrated not being able, I teach university where we teach these things. And we falsely tell ourselves, I've got to be able to solve all the problems. But the center, deity, death, resurrection of Jesus, plus I do. They're the solidest components of Christianity. We're on the solidest ground. If you want to spend the rest of your life answering those other questions, go for it. There's probably 50 Christian books from Christian publishers called three, four, and five views books. What's hell like? 
four views. Now they've redone the hell book. There's so much interest, they've done four views on hell twice with different people. Sovereignty, free will, get it. Eternal security, get it. There's no orthodox Christian view. I hope nobody would say that Calvin isn't going to heaven or Wesley's not going to heaven. I hope they wouldn't say that. I checked this out, Peter's a Wesley fan, and you said that story about Whitfield in heaven is a true comment from John, John Wesley, right? You know, Whitfield was his Calvinistic buddy, and Wesley was a Wesleyan. <laughs> He's the true founder, it's often said, of Arminianism, not... Jacob Arminius was more of a mild Calvinist. Uh, so, Wesley was asked one day, do you expect to find your friend, Whitfield, in heaven? And, what, and Wesley said, no. And the person said, I thought so. Meaning that John Wesley didn't think Whitfield would make it. And then Wesley went on to answer the question. He's going to be so close to the throne and I'm going to be so far away from the throne that I'll probably never run into him. And that was his Calvinistic buddy. And yet the fellow who asked him thought he worked it all out, and Wesley had Whitfield going to hell. If you want to read those other books about those things, read them, but don't tell yourself, if I can't straighten this out, I'm not a Christian. Major in the major. I had a seminary student a few years ago, interesting. Seminary student came up and said, I've been working on this for a long time, and I think I really have found the secret to the difference between Calvin and Wesley. I looked at him. My look was sort of like, you're a graduate student and you're talking like that? I said, I'll tell you what. I'm not saying you don't have the key, but if you do, you're sharper than Augustine. You're sharper than Anselm. You're sharper than Thomas. You're sharper than Calvin. You're sharper than Luther. You're sharper than Wesley. You've really got it together. And the guy started laughing. He got my point. Not likely you're going to work these things out in your own life. But who says you have to? Know the center, be on the road, and start concentrating on what you can do for other people, what needs there are, what needs to be done on the yellow brick road. You know, it is true that you can take things with you to heaven. It's not true that you can't take anything with you to heaven. The only thing you can take to heaven are people. Or things in people's lives, helping them through something, making them a better this or that just like someone's made you a better this or that. We can take people and qualities to heaven with us, but not a wheelbarrow of gold. So let's do what we can and work on the road. But just that warning about factual doubt, know the difference between central and periphery doctrines, and know that the things that you have to know are by far on the strongest grounds. Okay, emotional doubt the rest of the way. There's only a few more slides, actually. Okay, let's talk about a text. Philippians 4, 6 through 9. Um, yeah, let me just stop right there. 
When I went back to school to study rational motor behavior therapy, it's because a new kind of therapy, new, I mean, it's a few decades old now, but a new kind of therapy has been taken over for Freudian and Skinnerian, if you're into the, the views, like I say, philosophy of love psychology. And one recent writer said, well, let me back up. One of your great, one of the great British a mathematician and philosopher, Albert North Whitehead said, very famous quote, all of philosophy is a footnote to Plato. All of philosophy is the greatest mind in, and a lot of Christians have been Christian Platonists. See, that's the color of glasses, by the way. That's the color of glasses they bring to their theology, Platonism. All right, well, recently, a, a cognitive, a key cognitive, secular cognitive philosopher said, all modern psychology is cognitive in nature. Cognitive is the hottest thing going today. And it is so important that, that if you bring up almost any issue, you will be taught uh, cognitive remedies. I'll tell you what, let me, let me do it this way. Let me come back to Philippians 4. Let, let go ahead and flip down a few and go to the next main slide. There you go. The guy I studied under is Albert Ellis, an atheist, not a friend of Christianity. But a lot of Christians study with him. When I was studying with him, half of our group were, as far as I could tell, evangelical Christians. Now he's weird, I mean he's passed away now, but he's weird, he teaches a lot of crazy things he told us our first homework assignment. We were away from home. So he said, our, your first homework assignment is when you go to the restaurant tonight, walk up to somebody. I don't care what gender they are. I don't care what they're doing. I don't care if they're with somebody or not with somebody. Proposition them. Because he wanted to teach inhibition techniques. That's what I mean by kind of different. <laughs> but he is so good on cognitive properties and how we heal emotional issues. Let me define cognitive method that the one guy said is what all psychology is about. You go, well, I don't want to know about psychology. That's secular. Almost all Christian psychologists and counselors use this method. Not Ellis's but the general cognitive method. He just has the best known version of it. And here's how it, it, it'll stun you. It will stun you and it will tell you why we're emotionally wrought about things and what you can do to start reversing it. Okay, here's the theory, ABC. You can just do it with ABCs and it'll make sense. But if you're interested, I'll tell you what they are. A's are things that happen to you. He calls them activating events. A's are, well, you don't understand. This is an actual friend of ours. Uh, you don't understand. If you were hit by an 18-wheeler and you had all the problems I've had for the last 40 years, you wouldn't be talking like that. Or if you had the disease I have, or if your old man was like mine, or if 
something happened to you when you were a child like something happened to me, or if you had a psychological disease like I have, almost all of us argue that A's cause C's. A's are what happened to you, could be heredity, could be environment. A's are what happened to you, and C's are consequences. And at some time or another, some more than others, we all argue that A's cause C's. Here's the problem. The heart of cognitive therapy, A's don't cause C's. You go, well, that shows you're stupid. You get hit by an 18-wheeler and see how you feel. Look, I didn't say that if you get hit by an 18-wheeler, you won't be hurt. I'm saying what's going on in you right now, the emotional pain you have, does not come from 18-wheelers. Heck, it doesn't. You get hit by an... Oh, okay, okay. I hold you, hold you the first time. Just calm down. A's can cause pain. Boy, do they. You're born with a disease. You contract something. You were abused as a child by whatever means. A's cause pain. But we're talking emotional hurt now. And emotional hurt is what you add to your pain. And they have found now in hundreds of experiments that probably, there are exceptions, but probably the worst kind of pain does not come from what happens to you. It comes from how you download it. What do you say about it? And boy, does it get tricky. But watch what you say to yourselves. If you say this, when I was a child, I blank, and ever since then I've been no good to anybody. Really? Yeah, I'm no good right now. I've never helped anybody. I try. I just mess people up. I'm a loser. I'm stupid. I'm headed for the nut house. I'm probably not saved. What do you mean you're probably not saved? You're an elder in our church. If everybody, if they took a survey, you'd probably win the jackpot for the best Christian. Yeah, they don't know me. I, I don't think I'm saved. Why not? Last night I had some doubts. What well, doesn't make you unsaved? But listen to the things they're telling themselves. What about students who say, I hate tests. Why? I can never study for tests because I flunk every one of them. You might really turn it around and pass tomorrow, but if you tell yourself you're going to flunk and you really, really believe it, you're probably not going to do well. That's emotional pain. No, you don't understand. I don't have the IQ of my friends. Okay, that's an A. That's an A. That's hereditary. But just because A's hurt, the kind of emotions that ruin your life are B's. You know what the B's are? my beliefs about my A's. Okay, so I got hit by an 18-wheeler. So I have disease X. So I was abused this way. How does that make you feel? Like a loser? I've blown my whole life. Now see, you're not describing the 18-wheeler or the abuse. You're talking about what you're saying to yourself emotionally. An emotional doubter, uh, I mean, psychologists will go after your bees. There are two kinds of bees. 
good bees and bad bees. Good bees give life. Bad bees kill. And you know what's amazing? There are at least, there's a lot of verses in Psalms and Proverbs and other books in the Bible, but there are probably 10 to 15 verses in Proverbs that basically says, well, how about this verse? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 15. He that is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Do you folks have Thanksgiving here? Is there Thanksgiving Day? You don't? Well, they do in Canada and they do in the U.S. I don't know where else, and they're different days. But think about that verse in Proverbs. He that is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Every day can be Thanksgiving. Wow, is that a great praise service in church today? Every day can be a praise service. What does it take? It takes you to choose it. It takes you to do something. Yeah, but you don't know me. I'm, 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 see what you're doing? You're not talking about the 18-wheeler now. You're talking about your doubt. You're talking about your emotions. And emotions, bad bees kill. One of Ellis's, when we took our course, one of his right-hand probably the heir apparent to his kingdom. He's a professor at one of our major universities of psychology. He says, he, they, they say things to stun you, obviously. A to C thinking. Everyone does it, and it's the fastest way to the nut house. That's how he started class. A to C thinking is the fastest way to the nut house. I.e., what's A to C thinking? You can blame everything on your genes, the events in your life, who your parents were, blame it all on everybody else, because you know what you just said? By blaming on others, you're saying, I can't do anything about it. Okay, enough said. This is the way cognitive therapy goes after it, and you, you can spend, in our country anyway, you can spend $150 an hour to learn how to think differently, to learn to tell yourself good bees. Well, I can't make myself the smartest person in the world. No, but you can tell yourself that not being the smartest person in the world is not the worst malady you can have. You say, there's a lot of dumber people than you, or at least a few. <laughs> and if you know the person really well, you can joke like that, and, and they get the point you're making. The point is not, I can raise your IQ by you changing what you say. The point is, I can tell you that having a high IQ does not make who you are and it doesn't change your value to people. People love you like you are, not me. Uh, we got a lot of work to do. And that's what you work on. Okay, let me back up to Philippians, because this is a good text that does it. Paul says in, in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. And then he says, what can you do? First thing he says is pray. So let's, there you go. Pray. Peter gives some details. How do you pray, Paul? Peter says, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. That's cognitive. By the way, that word for cares, it's anxieties. It's anxiety in Philippians 4, 6. It's anxiety in 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care on him, for he cares for you, give it to the Lord. Now, of these four steps, I'm going to confess a weakness to you. Of these four steps, I, I spend a fair amount of time praying every day. But it is my short suit 
out of these four. If I were going to pick something to work on, I should work on number one, which is prayer. Especially when you've had something happen, like, see, I'm going to blame an A. I'm going to cross the line. My wife died of stomach cancer when my four children, well, she was only 43, and the youngest was nine. And ever since then, it's hard for me to make the move from someone's sick to I know they're going to be okay. Right? You know, that's a dumb example, but when a car rolls over you, you might have some treads on you, right? Um, things in life leave scars, and that's a scar. So it's hard for me to say, just give it to the Lord and pray, because I'm too quick to take it back, and I imagine a lot of you are. You hear that comment a lot. Here's another one you can try, B. Paul said if there's anything, he said do it with thanksgiving, and later he says if there's anything praiseworthy. Now, if we were to have a testimony time here, I'd love to do it. I'm just already see here, I'm getting, I need to stop. Um, if we were to give a testimony time, and I were to ask you, I've done this a lot of times, not rehearsed, I've done it with big crowds, I've done it with thousands of people, and I ask the question, how many of you have been in a worked up emotional state that's our topic, emotional issues. You're in a worked up emotional state, and either accidentally or on purpose, purpose would be what we did yesterday when we put some hymns on and just sat there for, I don't know, half hour and listened to some really good Christian music. That would be purposeful. Or accidental would be, well, it's time for church. I got to go to church. I know we're going to be singing. And you go to church and you throw yourself into it a little bit. But I'll say, how many people are going through a worked up emotional state and they spend at least 10 minutes in Thanksgiving and praise and hands go up all over? And I'll say, what happens when you praise? If you really concentrate on your prayer, don't, don't just, I mean, on the praise, don't, don't sing the songs and think about nothing but your problem. What happens? And people call out all kinds of things. Uh, my emotion lifts. My mood changes. A lot of different answers, but here's my favorite one. I begin to look at my issues from God's perspective. What did you just do? You changed your thinking. You know secular ways to get rid of depression and anxiety? Change your channel. What's change your channel mean? Well, I don't know, go for a bike ride. Swim. Call a friend. Go for a walk. Cut the lawn. Those are actual secular ways you can learn to get rid of anxiety and depression. Here's the problem. When you cut your lawn, the dandelions come back. And all these methods I just gave you, they're Band-Aids. Because they don't stop the stress. The stress will be back, especially when stressors come. But this method, you could actually the ABC method or this method, this is a type of ABC method. You can actually pull the weeds out by the roots because you're killing the underneath fire that gives rise to the emotion. You're telling yourself, this is you talking to you. I'm sorry, this is not the most important thing in my life. Oh, it is. It's your grandkids. It's your salvation. It's your no, it's not them. It's your thoughts about them. 
There is a difference. There's a difference between people and your thoughts about people. And you can sit in your house and ruminate for hours and be sick to your stomach. And then the minute your grandchild comes over, everything's fine because it doesn't affect them. That was just in your own mind. But we were sick to death in the meantime. That's bees. So Paul says, number one, pray. Two, thanksgiving and praise. Three, this might be the most important verse. It's a goody two-shoes verse, I call it. Because nobody thinks they need it. You know, until the time comes. I see I left my glasses back there with you. Oh, did I? Or do I have? I left them with you. Okay, I can't read this. Um, Philippians 4, 8. But every translation is different. And it says whatever things are good, whatever things are noteworthy, whatever things are true, what are, you, what are you thinking? You think the truth, not the junk that you've been feeding yourself. Yeah, but those are my grandkids. No, they're not. Your, the kids are your grandkids, but the thoughts are your mixed up thoughts. Start learning the difference between what we tell ourselves about the situation and the situation. The grandchild is not good. Don't, don't we all, that sometimes if you're a grandparent, don't you have the secret belief that if you quit worried about your kids, you're somehow going to get into trouble? My worry personally stops them. Silly. And we catch ourselves once in a while, but most of the time we don't. All right, change your thinking. From what? Change your thinking from the anxious thoughts of verse 6 to the godly thoughts of verse 8. And the godly thoughts have to do with truth, God's promises, facts. I mean, bottom line, if the death, DD, death, resurrection, and I do are true, no matter what happens to me or to an individual in my family, we're still talking about eternity. Bottom line, you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, eternal life is something we all share together with the God of the universe. There's a community aspect, and then there's a God aspect. Okay, lastly, practice these things. Pray, thanks, praise, change your thinking, practice, practice, practice. When's the most important term, time to practice these things? When you're in the middle of the anxiety or depression. What's the second best time to practice them? When you're not in the anxiety or depression. You know why? You were in the anxiety and depression because that's you. That's your personality. And you know it's going to come up again. So do it when you're strong to make a path for when you're weak. Best time? when you're really hurting. Next best time, when you're not, because you want to teach yourself good habits because you will be hurting again, that's you. Just remember, if you say, well, I hate to be like this, I hate to be so pedantic, I hate to be so detail-oriented. If you weren't that detail-oriented, you probably wouldn't be half as good at your job as you are now. That's the same personality trait that makes you sell more than somebody else, that makes you know more than somebody else, that makes you teach better than somebody else. It's the same characteristics, but emotional doubt is abuse. It is abusing your God-given blessings. And it's saying, no, the Lord doesn't know. He doesn't know my grandchild. I keep using grandchild. I don't know what it is. You know why? 
because we get on a plane on Monday to go see our grandchildren that we haven't seen for, we've seen them twice in over three years. That's because they don't live in the U.S. anymore. So we're thinking grandkids. It's hard. It's hard to be away. Okay, next one we've already done. Next. I have two issues here. I just won't have time to get into them. When I have longer times to talk, I talk about separate issues. For example, the most common question I get today is that God is silent. Why doesn't God pay attention? And do you know on the silence question, we're done. I just have a conclusion to give you here. Um, on the silence question, oftentimes I hear Christians say this, God never talks to me. I just wish he'd talk to me once in a while. Like, what do you mean? Well, like he did in the Bible. What do you mean like he did in the Bible? Every time in the New Testament somebody needed something, he was there and he did a miracle. He comforted them every time he did. What Bible are you reading? There's a very common view that God comes on the scene in the New Testament I mean, the Old Testament is just a big book with a lot of circumstances, a lot of different, but I mean, in the New Testament, and we know it better, too, in the New Testament, it just, they just say God's always there. Let me tell you something. Every time a Christian is in a tough situation in the New Testament, it would be humanly helpful if God would take them out of it. Do you know there are almost no times when he does? No. He was always talking to him in the New Testament. Almost never. He always delivered them from their problems. Go count. And one time a person said, Oh, I remember Acts 16. Remember? Uh, Paul and Silas were in jail, and God sent an earthquake just at the right time. And the jail opened up, they were let out, and he got to lead the Philippian jailer and his whole family of the Lord. That's the kind of thing I mean. And I said, was that before or after Paul and Silas were whipped? All right, I withdraw my question. How about Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the garden. And we pass off the garden. Well, he said, let your will be done. Yes, he did. But he asked that the cup would be taken from him. And God answered his prayer, but God answered his prayer on Sunday morning when he raised him from the dead. Whoops. That means he had to go through it. And if you're going to use Jesus for your example, we'll probably have to go through it. See what I mean? You tell yourself the wrong things. God's always there. From what I can tell, Jesus had more than a half dozen close scrapes with death. His father never took them from him, except as a child when his father took him to Egypt. But you know what? That's not a good example, because what if you were one of the mothers of one of the babies that were killed in Bethlehem when Jesus left? It wasn't a total taking away from him. And there's no other cases. If the Son of God, here's a question, I'll stop. If the Son of God did not get taken away from his dilemmas, what gives us the right to think that God will always remove or should remove us from our 
dilemmas. Who says? Well, you just thought it was the New Testament. No, it's not. All right, let's, well, let's go ahead and put the conclusion up here. We can just... Here's some things you can think about. Expect to doubt. This is, we're sinners, we're humans, expect it. Identify the predominant variety. Easy question, are you what ifing? Does it hurt? Those are two easy questions. If they are, probably emotional. So be diligent and, and practice the specifications and be prepared to grow spiritually. By the way, I have three books on doubt. Two of them are free. Nothing to for sale on my website, GaryHabermas.com. Two of my free... Two of my three doubt books are free on my website. You can download them, take them, use them, give them to somebody who's hurting. GaryHabermas.com under the uh, books tab on the left-hand side. Okay. Lots to think about. Um, any questions? Anyone would like to start us off? Stand silence. Yes. Hang on a second. I'll just pass you the From your first talk, all the facts came from the Bible. Were there any historians in Rome at the time that you can look back at and say, well? They saw it, they recorded it. Or is it like things in the wall, they got sort of brushed under the carpet because they didn't want to know? Good, good question. But first of all, let me repeat. Not just do the strongest critics, atheist, non-Christian New Testament scholars, not only will they use the, same, the good verses, the same ones I used, not only will they say the New Testament ones are better, these are the non-believers. Um, so for one thing, the, 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 the ones in the Bible are going to be the most used, even by unbelievers. But secondly, yes. On my website, under the same books tab, is a chapter from one of my other books called The Historical Jesus. And I list 18 secular sources for the life of Jesus. And those 18 sources teach 60 different things about uh, Jesus, his teachings, disciples, his death, even his resurrection, even his miracles, all from non-Christian books. So yes, we do have non-Christian books, and there are no early sources that say the Christian stuff is bunk. So we do have the secular sources. We have some archeological sources too. Uh, can I just follow up on the question that's been asked? Um, because I've seen um, quotes from Josephus that are kind of quite detailed about Jesus. It's a paragraph. Uh, yeah. And then I've seen others who cast doubt on whether those were original Josephus or whether it was added right. later. Right. Yeah, there's two Josephus quotes about Jesus. And almost everybody, including Christians, think that the first Josephus quote, the paragraph, that he says about eight or ten things about Jesus. 
and they think two or three of them were added later in the manuscripts, but the rest of them he said them, and there's some very lofty things, including that the disciples taught that they saw the risen Jesus afterwards, rather than somebody doctored the phrase and said, he rose from the dead. Now, Josephus wouldn't say he rose from the dead. Josephus wasn't a Christian. But Josephus likely said the disciples believed he rose from the dead and saw him again. So, yeah, they, it is widely admitted, even among Christians, that some words were added to Josephus. They can pretty much tell where they are. You go, why? Well, because we have other translations of Josephus in other languages, and they either have the words or don't have the words. So you can compare other additions to these. But the, the predominant view today among skeptics is that the most of that paragraph was all said by Josephus. In fact, critics today think the two best secular sources for Jesus are Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus. By the way, the earliest source for Jesus, the earliest written source may be an unbeliever. An unbeliever named Thallus, a Greek historian, seems to predate the Gospels. And he talks about a miracle. So, oh, I should say supernatural event. A little difference. Uh, going back to your first talk, when you have proved um, that uh, Christian faith is reasonable, uh, how are we better off? How? That? How are we better off for knowing that Christian faith is reasonable? How are we better off? What we want to know is not whether it's reasonable, but whether it's true. How would you separate reasonable from true? Um, uh, reasonable means that it uh, is compatible with the facts. But true means that it actually happened as advertised. Well, I think those are degrees of the same thing. L let me um, say it this way. All inductive disciplines, this is a little bit of philosophy, all inductive disciplines, whether it's any of the sciences or the social sciences, psychology, history, uh, anthropology, any inductive discipline, the only exceptions would be certain mathematical theorems and certain logical theorems, which is very rare. Other than that, all knowledge, in fact, some people would say all knowledge because they'd say mathematical theorems and logical theorems are not knowledge in this sense. But virtually all knowledge, if not all knowledge, is inductive. All inductive knowledge is only probably true. Okay? If you think about it, if you go to be treated for cancer, the person who keeps saying, but I could still have cancer, I could still have cancer, no, we ran tests. But I, I could still have this kind of cancer, we ran a test for that. But I could still have it. Ultimately, the person's right. They could. But the chances they have it after you run all these tests are, is very unlikely. So it's a probabilistic thing. So if you say, well, all right, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is reasonable, and you say it corresponds to the facts. By the way, the corresponding to the facts is the definition of truth. Truth. Pardon? Okay. 
but the primary, the primary de if, you if you take a course, if you study at school, the primary definition of truth is it corresponds to the facts. I mean, what, what else would it be? It doesn't correspond to the facts? Corresponding to the facts is what you hope is true of what you believe, right? Um, you hope that when the news broadcast says humans set foot on the moon, that that wasn't some kind of elaborate hoax, that somebody really did step on the moon. So you, you're hoping that the broadcast is consistent with people really stepping on moon dust. Um, that's corresponding to facts. So things are either probably true, less probably, not probably, poorly related. There's a, there's a scale of how likely something is. And the more likely something is, the more, true, the more likely true it is. You say, well, I'd rather not have likely true. Likely true is all you have. All science is only likely true. All medicine is only likely true. All history, all psychology, all inductive disciplines are likely true. So we're human beings, and as human beings, we only know impartially. That's why we rely on God. We, we only know impartially. So you want it to be as probable as possible. By the way, two very well-known, one's British, his name's Richard Swinburne, one of the foremost scholars in the world, and now another one, has used Bayes' theorem. It's a very complicated mathematical theorem for, for how likely facts are. Both of them judged that the resurrection of Jesus is in the vicinity of 97 to 98% reliable if all you do is go on the facts that we have from history. So, I mean, you can construe it some other way if you want to, but that's the way it's defined in classes that deal with the nature of, of truth. And it makes no difference whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, that's the way truth is defined.